We are fast approaching Christmas, and I don't know about you, but that has a mixed response in my heart. Christmas time, it's a mixture of um, uh, enjoyment and exhaustion all at the same time. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, it's, it, it, it can be a wonderful time of celebration, uh, and I certainly love the, the aspect of getting together with our family and just having a great meal together. Um, and I love the traditions of Christmas, but I have to be honest with you, in the last couple of years, the materialism and the, uh, the rampant sort of, I think Christmas has become the ultimate expression of capitalism in our, in our, in our culture. It is just like rampant and blatant, and you're milked for every cent that you have, every Christmas card, you know, encouraged to buy presents for things that you don't need and will never use again, you're encouraged to give to people over Christmas. So can I just be naughty and say this to you straight up, all right? Just keep Christmas simple. Please, don't get into debt. It's not worth it. Don't get into debt. If you don't have money to give gifts, don't give gifts, just have a great meal with your friends and your family and enjoy. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? Jesus is the ultimate gift of Christmas. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. So I want to encourage you. It's great to have a great meal, and we, we have great meals with our family every, every year. But please, don't, go, don't, don't reach January with like a 1,000 pounds credit card debt because you couldn't control yourself. Please control yourself. It's not worth it. Can anyone say amen? All right, great. So there's my rant for today. It's over at the beginning, all right? So that's really cool. But um, here's what some people have said about Christmas. Um, one of the cartoons I, I grew up uh, watching a lot was Bart Simpson. Anyone remember Bart, Bart Simpson? He said this, aren't we forgetting the true meaning of Christmas? You know, it's the birth of Santa. Isn't that true? Uh, or Charles Dickens, I love the Christmas Carol, which I watch every year, and he wrote this. He said, I, I, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year round. I also like uh, Helen Keller. Uh, she was an amazing lady, and she said she was blind and mute, and she said the only blind person at Christmas time is that one who has not got Christmas in his heart. And these are, these are really special uh, things that we need to remember. But ultimately, let's point ourselves and our hearts to Jesus. So I want to say this. Um, I've, even, I've even heard Christians say that actually um, Santa is an anagram for Satan. Have you heard that one before? I have. Um, what nonsense. Sorry. So if you think that, I'm really sorry that I hurt your feelings, but it really is nonsense. Okay. Um, so whatever your positive or negative feelings about Christmas, uh, each family develops their own tradition, the expression of joy around the birth of Christ. And everyone has a perspective. Everyone has a viewpoint that adds to the whole picture and story of Christmas. And I think for me, what I've really enjoyed growing up or uh, spending the last 20 years rather in England is, is that there's a sense that we learn from other people's perspectives and cultures. And I've really enjoyed that, being involved in a multicultural kind of context. And I think that part of the joy of life is walking humbly through your life together with other people and learning from other people. And so that's part of my journey and part of the enjoyment of my own life in the last 20 years is that I've been able to learn from others and understand something of what they think and what they feel, and that's enriched my life in such an amazing way. But obviously, centrally to us as, as Christians, uh, the time over Christmas is where people's hearts are perhaps a little bit more open than they usually would be. 
And it's a fantastic opportunity to speak about Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. And so I would encourage you, whatever your perspective, whether you have positive feelings toward Christmas or neutral feelings or whatever it is, that we can seize this opportunity with both hands and let people know about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And I, I think if we can appreciate a new perspective, something that has become stale and tired for many can take on a new life. And I, I think what I'm trying to do this morning is to look through the perspective of worship of the angels at Christmas time, and I hope that this perspective will refresh you as you think about Christmas this year. Last Sunday was the first Sunday in Advent where traditionally the church begins to think about and anticipate uh, Christ's coming as a child. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look predominantly at Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to make reference uh, to a number of scriptures this morning. But remember, we're trying to look through the perspective of the worship of, angel, of the angels, and I really trust that's going to speak to you this morning. And for me, as we anticipate the manger, as we think about Jesus coming and uh, coming in the form of a child, a helpless babe, remember at the end that points us to the cross it points us to the cruelty of the cross ultimately, and we can't understand one without the other. And so as we reflect on the glory of the incarnation, Jesus coming at Christmas time, we can also begin to think about the tragedy of our own sin, of human sin, and ultimately that that required a Savior to save us from ourselves. And so that's really what I want to, to, to put to you this morning, that as we celebrate the miracle of Jesus and the miracle of the birth and the wonder of the baby, that we will once again reflect on our own lives and the wonder of the new birth of our own lives as we've come to understand Jesus by faith. So, the worship of the angels. Um, we do have a Christmas tree in our in our. Um, house. We haven't got it up yet, but I'm always fascinated what people choose to put on their trees. And generally, you might, uh, you will see on most people's trees, you will see some kind of representation of an angel, either at the top of the tree or on, on uh, part of the tree. And normally they kind of are sort of Renaissance angels. You know, they're fat sort of cherub-like creatures, like babies sort of with bottoms, you know, those kind of those pictures that you see in, uh, if you go to the art galleries in London, whenever you see a Renaissance painting of an angel, generally it's like a sort of toddler with a big bottom and sort of rosy and all glowing. Yeah, you don't understand what I'm saying. So maybe that's what you're going to put on your tree. The irony is that when you read the scripture and whenever the scripture talks about angels, angels are always masculine and they're always powerful. Whenever the Bible speaks about angels, it speaks about powerful beings, generally big masculine beings, and they play a significant role in the, the whole of the scripture and especially in the story of Bethlehem. And without their involvement in the story of, of Bethlehem, there would be a great big gaping hole. And so that's the perspective I want to take this morning is to look through the perspective of what the angels mean in the story. And so whenever we, th we see angels in the, new t in, the, in the Scripture, they're called by various names. And you might have heard some of these names. Cherubim, seraphim. Often the, scri the Scripture says simply living creatures. Whenever that language is used, it's talking about angels. And uh, they're often, as I've said, described as men. 
large men in shining garments. Uh, and we first read in, in Genesis, there were angels guarding the Garden of Eden. They often are described as waging war. Uh, they helped Peter get out of prison. Remember that amazing story in the book of Acts? The angels break open the, the gates and, he, and he's released out of prison. And often they are described worshiping in the presence of God. And we also know that tragically some of them rebelled against God. And so they have names like Michael. Michael means who is like God. They have names like Gabriel. The angel Gabriel, which means warrior of God. And then there is Lucifer, which means light bearer. And ultimately, Lucifer became the ultimate rebel. And so he's named, renamed in the New Testament. He's named Satan, which means adversary, the ultimate adversary of God. And they're often seen as servants, <clears throat> mysterious servants of God. At the, and they're the very center of God's dealings with men and women in the Bible. And so the word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, which simply means a messenger, someone who is sent, an angel. So that's where we get the word from, angelos. And often in the Bible, we see, they are seen simply as messengers. So for example, they carried a message of warning to Sodom and Gomorrah, if you read in Genesis 19. Uh, what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember when I was a kid, I always remember that story. Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel 3. And we hear that they, uh, there's an angel that brings the message of rescue to in Daniel 3. Uh, what about Genesis 16? They brought a message to Hagar, who was Sarah's handsmaiden. All of these were angelic beings that brought these messages to people. And so all through the Bible, they are active beings. They are delivering messages from God, but they do more than that. And I'm going to get onto that in a short while. The, the New Testament word for preaching the gospel we know is evangelios, which means Evangelios means preaching the word, and it's the same root word as angel. It's the messenger. Evangelios is the same root word as angelos. And so right at the beginning of the gospel story, we see in the, when the good news is first announced by the angels, the message of the gospel is brought into the world by angels, by angelic messengers during those first events at Bethlehem. So I want to just have a look, three little points, how they were involved in the amazing story of Bethlehem. So the first time we read of this in, in Luke is Gabriel, who is the highest ranking um, angel in the angelic realm. He comes to earth and he uses those amazing words that Paul uh, quotes in uh, uh, Galatians 4. He says, the fullness of time has come. And so the, uh, the, the, this message that Gabriel brings is that the whole of history has been anticipating this moment when Messiah would come, and he announces, he announces it. And Gabriel does this with three announcements. First announcement, if you're following in your Bible, is Luke chapter 1 from verse 5. If you read from, read from verse 5 to verse 22, uh, Gabriel comes and makes an announcement about John the baptizer. Do you remember that? 
And he appears to Zechariah, who's a childless old priest in the temple. And he's initially, Zechariah's terrified, and then he's, he's a little bit amused when he hears um, what Gabriel has to say, because his wife is an ancient lady, she's an old lady, and uh, it's not possible physically for her to have a child. And so she, he doesn't believe um, that actually Gabriel is going to, as he prophesies the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, he doesn't believe Gabriel. And so Malachi prophesied that God would send someone much like Elijah who would prepare the way for the Messiah and he would redeem God's And so because Zechariah doesn't believe, Gabriel says that he will be mute until the child is born. And that's exactly what happened. And John the baptizer is born. And as we know, in the, as we've been studying Mark, John the baptizer comes preaching the message, prepare the way of the Lord. The kingdom is coming. And so Gabriel announces this event. That's the first thing that he does. That's the first announcement that this amazing uh, angel makes. The second announcement is six months later. You know the story. Gabriel again appears in Nazareth, but this time to a young woman called Mary. And you can read that in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, verse 38. And he says to her, Gabriel says, Mary, you've chosen. You have this incredible privilege to bear the Messiah. And her response, when you look at her response, it's one of initial confusion, but ultimately it's one of submission, where she says, I will do whatever God has for me. And uh, she's mystified of how this is all going to happen because she's a virgin and she's engaged to this older man called Joseph. And then Gabriel brings the news and says, well, this is going to happen in a way that's not going to violate you in any way that the child is going to be the result of a miraculous intervention in your life by the Holy Spirit. And when the child is born, you must call him Jesus, which simply means the Lord is salvation. And that defines both the character of Jesus and his mission, that he's going to be the redeemer that comes to take away the sin of the world. And Mary's response is remarkable. If you read it in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, she simply says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to to your words. And then it simply says, the angel departs from her. And after Gabriel has spoken with Mary, he goes on and he speaks with Joseph, and he gives him the same message, and you can read that in Matthew chapter 1, um, that Mary was going to have this child that was not a hum from, from born of a human, but born of God, and that Joseph was to take her and be fully confident of her purity in her own life. And so if you just contemplate the absolute enormity of those simple events that this woman could respond in that way and really trust what Gabriel was saying and that Joseph remarkably also could trust what Gabriel was saying and both of them ultimately fulfill this incredible purpose that God has for our salvation story. So those are the first two announcements of this incredible angel Gabriel. And then the third is... Um, I presume that this is, uh, this is Gabriel. It says uh, in Luke chapter 2, if you're following the Bible, it says that Gabriel appears in the sky in the, of Judah to the shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem. And they were having a normal kind of routine night, tending their sheep. And then this brilliant light shines in the sky, and the uh, message is comes via the angels, and it says that they are absolutely terrified. Luke chapter 2. Um, and he has, he has the 
that this angel brings. It says um, in verse 10, The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, at cloths and lying in a manger. Now, it's really hard for us to contemplate this, but this announcement is really to people that nobody else thought of. I don't know if you know this, but the shepherds, actually in Jewish culture, shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were the poorest of the poor. That, that was a job that people did because they could do nothing else. There was no social standing for these people. They were literally the poorest of the poor. It's like, it's like to use them uh, without being too dramatic, but there are many slums in the world. It's like, it's like the angels appeared in, in a slum in the world and announced to the poorest of the poor that Messiah had come. That's what it's, the equivalent would be for us. And so I think sometimes when you read, we, we read this so many times, we forget the power of actually what was happening, that Jesus didn't come to the priests uh, the, the angels didn't come to the priests. They didn't come to the managers of the temple. They didn't come to the middle classes. They didn't come to the royalty. They came to the men and boys that no one else was thinking about. They came to the shepherds, the poorest of the poor, and made this incredible announcement to the poorest of the poor that Messiah was coming. It's incredible. And so that was a rare event in that day, and it still is a, a rare event, would be a rare, rare event Today, the poorest of the poor were the first to hear the evangelos, the good news of the gospel that Messiah had come. So I've said to you already that <clears throat> primarily we, when we read about messengers, they are angels rather, they are messengers or they are, are those that are, are seen guarding things. And, but here is another primary function of the angels. They are ultimately those that worship and this is for me is, is, is so delightful to think about. The prime function of angels in heaven is to praise and worship. And we see that consistently throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, for example, in Isaiah, when he has that vision in the throne room of God, he witnesses the angels worshiping God in heaven, and he describes these six-winged seraphim, and they are declaring the greatness and the glory of God. So in Isaiah 6 verse 3 it says, the one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that's what the angels are doing right now. They are declaring the glory of God in the throne room of God over all of creation. And the same way in Revelation, when John has this amazing glimpse of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, he sees these living creatures or these angels these declaring the holiness of God and calling on the redeemed to worship this God of grace that has poured, poured out salvation upon all of us. And that's what John is encouraging us to do. So Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you. O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so there's this anticipation. John is calling us to worship with the angels, to see what they are saying. Revelation 5:12, they say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so we see through all of these scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, that the angels are celebrating God's creation and Christ's salvation. They are celebrating it all the time. 
And in the Christmas story, they assemble en masse like this great group of angels, and they are celebrating that Messiah has invaded this broken planet to reconcile all things to himself. That's what they are celebrating, that he's always been, Jesus has always been the object of God's eternal love as the Father in heaven. And so they can't help themselves when they make this announcement. They can't keep quiet. They have to raise their voice in worship. They have to raise their voice in triumph. And they worship God for his glory, for his son, for his plan to rescue men and women that are tired and confused and lost. And the Bible says they are just like sheep that have gone astray. And the angels are rejoicing as this plan is put into action that Messiah is coming. He is invading the earth with his love to reconcile all things to himself and ultimately all of creation to himself through Christ Jesus. Man, that's worth worshiping about. And so this first act of worship becomes the thread that links our hearts with eternity. Do you realize that every time we gather to worship, We are joining our hearts together with the angels in heaven and every Christian that has ever lived, and we celebrate exactly those same things. We are celebrating the love of God that has invaded our lives, the love of God that's transformed our lives and taken out a heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh. We are anticipating the whole of the reconciliation of all of creation. That's why Paul says all of creation is groaning in anticipation for the the, the revelation of the sons of God. That's what he's talking about. It's about worship. It's about saying, I'm longing to see the fullness of your plan, and I'm rejoicing in what I see already. You have made it plain. You have sent Jesus. He saved us. Our hearts are connected with that. And so every time we worship, every time we come in here, that should be our motivation. That amazing thing. Not just, oh, well, let's see what the band does today. Are they going to sing in tune? No, our hearts should be saying, Jesus, thank you so much for what you did. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. I am, right now, my heart is connecting with what you've done. I want to celebrate together with all the angels around your throne right now, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's no one like you in all of creation. That's what worship is. It's joining our hearts. It's, it's anticipating the fullness of redemption. All of creation is going to be reconciled. Every, every culture, I'll, I'm living for that day. I hope the Africans get to lead worship in heaven. Because, I mean, the Africans, they know how to sing and dance and do it for hours. Redeemed cultures. Every culture, every tribe, every nation redeemed, worshiping him. That's what we're looking forward to. So Luke 2 puts it like this. It says in verse 13, Suddenly there was an angel, with, was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth be peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. I was thinking about this this week, and this is just a little aside. Do you notice that it says that peace is amongst those with whom he is pleased? Do you notice that? People often say, oh, Christians, you say peace on earth. There's no peace on earth. You hypocrites. What is this message, peace on earth? It doesn't say peace on earth. It says peace to all those with whom he is pleased. The peace is there for those that know him, 
as Lord and Christ and Savior. That's where the peace is. He gives us His peace in the midst of all the trial and tribulation and the stabbings on the bridge and people that kill each other for no reason and someone gets hit by a stray bullet and someone gets hit by a car and we say, where's the peace? Where's the peace? Where's the peace? The peace is there for those that know the living Christ. That's what it says. Peace on earth for those with whom he is pleased. Who is he pleased with? Those that love him. That's the noise heart. Sorry, I didn't mean to rant like that, but it, I did. That's the truth of the gospel. And that's why we want to be motivated to share this good news with everyone. So that everyone can know his peace. Everyone can know his kindness and his grace. In the midst of suffering, we can know his peace. And so this is what Isaiah and John, they see in heaven. This is what the shepherds see on the hillside. And for a moment, there's a flash of eternal glory into their hearts, into their lives, and they see something of heaven. And because they've seen something of heaven, they celebrate with all of their hearts. I trust every time you come into this church building, you will have a flash of eternal glory into your heart, and you'll see something of who Jesus is, and you'll begin to worship with all of your heart because he's worthy. And... They see that God, God has come to offer, Jesus has come to offer peace with God to all that have been rebellious towards Him. All of us are rebels. All of us are rebels without a cause. And God says He wants to offer peace to us by the power of the cross as He transforms our hearts and lives. And God's solution, God's plan is reconcilia reconciliation between Himself and man and is summed up in a simple word that the Bible uses over and over again, shalom. And I would encourage you, I've been posting little things on Facebook, on our Facebook page. The Bible um, Society has put up little, little um, uh, word studies, and they're brilliant. They really are brilliant. This, uh, I've put up three so far. The one is shalom, peace. The other one is joy. And the other one is, uh, I forget now. But go onto the webpage. And it's just two minutes, and it'll explain exactly what the Bible means by shalom in a way that I can't do now. But it's, it's not just the absence of strife and conflict. It is really the very presence of Christ in your life. And that's why I describe, um, Isaiah describes Jesus as the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. He brings, he brings a unity to your life where things are kind of disconnected on the inside and you feel a little disconnected from yourself and your friends and your family, when the shalom of God comes, when the peace of God comes, the reign of God comes, all of those things that are disconnected are aligned. And you know peace. You know joy. That's the promise of God. That's what He came to do. And so it's through Jesus that we can have ultimately this relationship of peace with God. And remember our study of Philippians, Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what is the promise, Paul says? And the God of peace will be with you. How do you know peace in your life? <laughs> you practice love, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. That's how you know peace. You know, in my home, it works like this. When I get mad with Helen and we start fighting, what do you think is in our house? Do you think there's peace? <laughs> when I'm short-tempered 
and lacking self-control? Do you think there's peace in our house? No, of course not. Why? How does peace come? It comes as we allow the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and we begin to practice patience, kindness, self-control, all those things, and then suddenly there's peace. Why? Because that's the blessing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I'm not trying to make you feel guilty in any way. I'm just trying to say, as we learn to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit and soften our hearts to His working in our lives, and we begin to live out those things because that's already who we are. Christ has made us that. As we learn to live that out in our relationships, we suddenly find our relationships are so peaceful. There's unity. There's genuine love. Why? Because we're practicing those things. We're allowing the Holy Spirit to do that in our hearts. Okay, so that's what the angels do. They're worshipers, they're messengers. And then do you notice the last thing I'd like to say is that the angels continue to serve Jesus. And I want to just point this to you as, as I finish. Um, they are continually involved in the ministry of Jesus for the next 30 years, especially in the times of danger or of, of declaration of things about Jesus. Here are some examples that you can go and look at yourself. Um, in your devotions this week. For example, Matthew 2.13, again, it's an angel that warns Joseph to take Jesus out of the reach of King Herod. Now, it says, um, it says uh, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Remember, when Jesus is led into the desert, Matthew 4, 11, after his time of temptation, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. They're directly involved in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Um, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-three, it says, After Jesus has been praying, it says, An angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. What about the resurrection? Matthew 28, 2. Behold, there were, was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. And the angels also announced the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 28, John 20. And she saw, talking of Mary, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was, one at the head and one at the feet. In every major event in Jesus' life, whether he's going through a time of testing or something is declared about him, angels are involved. And even when Jesus went up to heaven, it says in Acts, uh, uh, whatever it is, verse 10, it says, um, while they were gazing into heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why are you still stand looking up to, into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Isn't that amazing? The angels are directly involved in the life and ministry of Jesus. And I think that's possibly what Paul had in mind when he writes to Timothy in a su summary of this uh, wonder of the incarnation in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed amongst the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. And so there's a great, great um, involvement by the angels in the life and ministry of Jesus here on earth, not only as witnesses to the amazing events that happened, but it says also that they gazed upon Jesus with great interest and love 
and admiration. There was an ongoing fascination of the angels with the ministry of Jesus. And this is what Peter describes in 1 Peter 1. He says, verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things, and he has the phrase, into which angels long to look. Isn't that fascinating? Why does Peter say of the ministry of Jesus that the angels long to look into the things that Jesus is doing and ministering into? Well, I read a commentary to try and understand a little better, and this gentleman said this. He said, it means that even the holy angels are struck with astonishment at the plan of human redemption and justly wonder at the incarnation of the infinite object of their adoration. If then these things are objects of deep consideration to the angels of God, how much more so should they not be to us? That's the point. He's saying the angels wonder at the plan of redemption. The angels worship at the plan of redemption. The angels were involved in the announcement of the plan of redemption. And all through Jesus' life, they were involved in encouraging and refreshing him in his mission. And if they are gazing, if they are longing to see the fulfillment of that, how much more shouldn't we? Human beings that have been saved by grace. And so... The angels worship Christ. They worship for him for who he is and for what he's done. They announce his birth. They exalt him in his birth. They minister to him in his life. They support him through his darkest moments. And they announce his resurrection all because he is Messiah. He is the chosen one. And all of this is done on behalf of a confused, undeserving, sinful, stained human race. Is done. And so the angels know what we so quickly and easily forget that the Lord Jesus is ever deserving of our worship, always and ever. And the angels can only serve that redeeming love, but they can't experience that redeeming love for themselves. Isn't that an amazing thought that not even the angels can experience what we experience? They exalt Christ in worship. Because for, for His grace. But how much more shouldn't we adore worship and love from our hearts as men and women who've been freely, freely given this amazing gift of grace and forgiveness? And so I want to conclude. I think, I think there are many uh, songs that we sing at Christmas time that are quite useless. Uh, I think some of the carols are absolutely useless. I don't know why we sing them at all. But there are some that are absolutely profound. And he has one. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And so my prayer for all of us this uh, Christmas time is that all of us, with grateful hearts, will join in the worship of the angels and exalt Jesus as Messiah, as King, as Lord of all, God's gift to every one of us. Amen.